0: I gotta read I see the book? I see the house? Well, he's going to see the
1: hall. That's a boy. why you buy it? Cute. Okay. In, <clears throat> any, let's start. Any prayer requests? Any, repose
0: of the soul of Mary Rossman's sister. She died yesterday, Mary. Don's oh. sister. in Oh. oh. Okay, <laughs> thanks. For the family.
1: Thanks. Um,
0: I'd like to get everybody's prayers this week. I have to go back in for a retest on something. Oh, it's
1: not
0: sweet. fun. There's nothing, you know. Just...
1: You've got them. You'll have them. Hi. Anybody else? <laughs> I
0: have one. Mary's. Uh... I told her.
1: T- yeah, she told. What's her name, Don? Carol. Carol.
0: Um, I just wanted to say thank you. I know that on and off you all have been praying for a house for me. Well, I got it in space. Lots of <laughs> are you glad you have your house Oh, we're not going to hear it's your terrifying. moaning here.
1: We're not going to hear. By the way, we weren't praying for the house. We were praying for you.
0: Well, <laughs> then right, you got me. <laughs> glad yes, to have you. I'm most appreciative of all your help. I really am.
1: Yeah, you're welcome. Glad to do it. Glad to help. And Suzanne, I know it was a big help name of the father son holy spirit thank you again lord for the gift of our life from you the gift of yourself this morning in the mass and your words to us Um, it's an amazing reading it's that moment when you ask the disciples who the people say you are and they don't see it and the disciples don't and peter does um It's the beginning of something extraordinary for him that's going to lead to real suffering. Um, So often it is for us, just when we think things are going well, um, we're called to a cross. Um, Give us the courage to enter it. I've got to say this on a personal note, sorry. When you think about... Sorry, I'm out of the prayer for a second. When you think about the stigmata and the people who have been given it, what a great honor for them to share in your suffering. Um, that's the stigmata. Um, help us somewhere to make a place in our own hearts to know that it's an honor, God, that's a, that it's an honor to suffer with you. We complain all the time when we face suffering. We shouldn't forget um, that you allow for it. And, um, When it comes to us, um, help us to make a place to know that we're being honored to share that suffering with you. Um, It'll change us, make us more able to love the way you do. So, let a blessing be upon all of us for that effort. Um, We ask a special blessing on Carol. Receive her into your kingdom if she has a time in purgatory. Let our prayers speed her. That's, That's the great gift. It's not like any one of us deserve it, but so often things are given to us that help us, whether we deserve it or not. So let our prayers help her, um, so that she can um, approach you and know the joy of seeing your face. And bless the family. Let them all feel a joy somewhere in their sorrows, knowing that she's with you. Um, We ask a blessing on Sue, um, surround her with your protection, um, whatever she faces, um, help her to go into it with a good heart. Um, she has our prayers. And we offer um, all of our, th- collectively our Thanksgiving for Barbara's new house, um, <laughs> sustain her in all of the work um, and whatever other discoveries she makes besides diamonds and things like that. Um, let it be a treasure for her and um, a new life is opening to her. Bless her and all that she's about to undertake. We offer these prayers um, to you, Christ our Lord. Amen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <clears throat> um, I'm going to do this. Um, she finally had a question that I want to get to um, see if I can fit it in here on the they're on dime thanks quick review as quickly as I can bonum est diffusium it, it's really um, it, it's a Latin phrase that um, Boethius would have known well goodness is diffusive you got that from Plato and um, and everything we know about Christ from Christianity would only reinforce it. Um, Boethius' argument that is that God is a good God. He didn't create anything bad. And we saw from Boethius, and we've been seeing at every work we've read, God's at work in the world constantly. He's never not at work. So goodness is diffusive. It's diffusing. It's flowing into the world whether we see it or not. Bonum est diffusum. There is no fortune that's, um, that's not good no bad fortune. He's at work. So what the amazing thing that God is doing is that he He, he, he works in a way that protects our free will. So many of the Protestants don't see it that way. They believe that we've lost our free will. We don't. We believe that we have it, that the Spirit is solicitous. He, he's careful of us. He works with our choices and is always at work to bring goodness out of bad. So bonum est um, it's diffusive. He's, he's always at work and if that's true, he's always at work, then there is no bad fortune. Whatever stupid things we do <coughs> may come back on us, but he's always trying to help us become better. So, and we've seen that in in uh, Chaucer. Um, every every story, I'm, I'll come to this more directly in a second, every story results in some justice, it's got an end to itself. Um, Chaucer's in the humanist tradition, and by hum- I, we've not talked about this a lot, but I wanna talk about it for a second, because Chaucer's in a Christian world, and he's dealing directly with spiritual realities. We've not been in a situation like this before, not even, a, Dante was alluding to the church, but we weren't in a church setting. All of these people are on a pilgrimage. They're going to St. Thomas's Shrine, right? So they're immediately involved in a holy activity, um, and several of the people, as we saw last week, are church officials. They're functionaries, the pardoner, the summoner, the friar, the nun's priest, uh, the prioress. You know, they're, So a, a good number of these pilgrims are, hold offices in the church. But Chaucer's not dealing in an ecclesial, explicitly in, a, in an ecclesial world. He's not showing his people doing rosaries and sitting in pews we're out in the world so and it's you can't read him very long without feeling you're in this humanist tradition he's alluding to Night's Tale he's back with Theseus so he's working in the humanist by humanist I mean pagan and larger than just the Christian world we're out in the world where everything happens we're not in a church setting so he carries that humanist tradition forward and we're in a sense he's giving us the fullness of life it's not confined to a church world we're out where all of us are in the world doing what we do. So he belongs to that. Shakespeare does. Dante does. Homer, Virgil, all these people have been working in this humanist tradition. One aspect of that we've seen from the beginning is there's not a, a poet that we've read who isn't in that humanist tradition who isn't showing us divine realities. They show us the God's working everywhere. But the focus isn't a religious setting. It's ordinary human beings, doing what they're doing, the gods are interacting with them, Um, so the humanist and the transcendent are always brought together, but the focus is on us as humans, our daily activities, what we do. Um, (coughs) An exegetical, it's so long since I've used that word, exegetical element. I think it means interpretive. We've not gone here before, but I not directly, explicitly, the way I did last week, but I want, to, I want to touch on this. Exegetical means a principle of interpretation. You know, how do you read a work of literature? You, you, I know, I, I've already told you how sickened I am by what people do with literature today. It really bothers me feminist, Freudian, Marxist, gender studies. I mean, they start with an agenda and read it into a work. So they're not seeing the work for what it is, they're imposing a reading on it. We're supposed to see what's there. what's there. And good poets—we've not done. It's just been not. It's not been our purpose. But good poets generally um, um, bring something into their work that helps us understand how how we're to interpret it. Homer does
0: Sorry. it. Very. Sorry. Very. Go away. Do <laughs> you want to hear it? No. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> Sorry.
1: No, I just, i what well, was funny about me, and I'm glad to wait, too, but you know, as I if go, go away would we'll do it. <laughs> Listen to me.
0: <laughs> well, I just pushed stop.
1: <laughs> no, I just love it. Go away. <laughs> it's the first thing we want to say get out of here. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah right.
0: When Alexa comes on and asks me what I want, and I haven't said anything
2: to
1: her. <laughs> um, great writers generally bring into their work something that helps us to interpret. We've not gone there because, but Virgil does it. I mean, if we had Virgil today, I could show you. But I think Homer does it in some ways. But Chaucer does it here in the, in the Sir Topaz story. We talked about that, right? I. Yes, we went through the Sir, the Sir Topas story, where where Chaucer, the host approaches Chaucer and says, it's your time to tell a story. Chaucer has to step up, and he tells the story of Sir Topaz. We went through this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know the stories, Chaucer's telling the story about this knight who gets ready for battle. He wants to take on all these adventures, and he gets on his horse like he's going to, you know, ride into this magnificent steed and fight, and and do something, perform these glorious deeds and win over a, a, a beautiful woman. He seeks out a fairy queen. Well, the funny, the comic part about it is he's writing, he's describing the flowers and describing the birds and the grass, nothing's happened. It's, it's all these flowery. And you know that there, there are people who write poems like that. They're, they're sentimental. They're just feeling full descriptions of, but nothing happens. He meets a giant confronts the giant he says I don't have any armor and he runs <laughs> doesn't he? he's a knight he has no armor he runs off and at some point finally the host says Shut, go away stop stop, stop. <laughs> you're and and more of it these I can't I should read it these rhymes are oh he said it's purgatory to listen to your rhymes and this is Chaucer he's the one who wrote this book so if you're paying attention you know his rhymes are extraordinary He's writing simple declarative stent sentences. Imagine doing that and rhyming every two lines. Easy to do? So the host is saying, oh, these rhymes are purgatory, and tells him to stop, and then Chaucer goes on to tell the story in prose. Now, why did Chaucer do that? Because he's showing us what constitutes a story, and moreover, he's calling attention to the form of it. So for Chaucer, by parody, he's making it clear something has to happen. A story is an action. We said that from Aristotle. It has to be this thing and not another. And I, my, my way of illustrating it last week is, remember, if we, if we cut off any of those stories in the middle, if we cut off the Reeves story or the Miller story, if we cut off Hamlet um, when um, um, when Hamlet puts on the mousetrap play to catch the king if it stopped there take any story cut it off in the middle you we, we would just be left bewildering asking ourselves why read this what do we there's no point every story has to have an end in view an action it has to be one thing not another A beginning middle and an end and good stories generally have a tension something has to be overcome because otherwise we don't we don't have any of those Moments of self-knowledge, self-revelation that are so important in literature. So Chaucer's showing us by parody, by contrast, opposition, what makes a story. Something has to happen. What we see in every story is that every story fulfills Boethius's dictum. There is no bad fortune. That something has to happen. And we've seen so far that every story... <coughs> Ends with a sense of justice. Some people have to deal with something, that there's something at work bringing about a justice. Um, And in the stories that we're going to look at today with the women, they're full of miracles. Miracles take place all the time. So he's teaching us um, how to read. And one of the ways I tried to bring it home last time was to suggest the difference between, you suggest you think about the difference between art and propaganda. Okay, because propaganda propaganda has an end outside of itself. Um, didactic literature, church literature so often, sadly, didactic literature has an end outside of itself. It's trying to get us to do something. Pornography has an end outside of itself. Um, art is self-contained. Eliot used the word autotelic, T-E-L-I-C telic, telus, end. Art is an end in itself. When we hear a piece of music, we're, we're meant to enter into that music and become one with it to quiet or move our soul. Music, motion, the emo, it moves the emotions. emotion <coughs> emotions of our souls, that's what music is. Every work of art is, has its end in itself. So a, work, a true work of art is like a game. We play games for the end there. When you do hopscotch, you're not doing it because you want to get somewhere. You do it for the joy of playing hopscotch, right? It has the nature of a game. We enter into it for the pleasure of it. So one of the definitions of art is a wholeness in itself. It has to form a whole. It has to be in complete action. It has to complete itself or we'd be left frustrated. And you know that one aspect of all the works of art that we've been dealing with is its beauty, its order, its truth. Those are all transcendentals. Truth, beauty, oneness. That's a transcendent. Oneness. It's this thing in itself. When we read Shakespeare, when we Chaucer, any of the works we've been reading, we're reading it to, to enter into that thing itself, to contemplate its meaning. While we're in it, there's nothing more. We're reading to get to the end. Once we're at the end we a, we'll feel an action completing itself. It gives us, it leaves us with a sense of completeness that very often we don't find in life. Art is helping us to experience a completeness, a rest. We rest in it. Um, St. Augustine talked about how much he loved tragedies. You know, how is it possible to read King Lear, Anthony and Cleopatra? They are painful, painful plays. Lear is one of those painful plays I've ever but when you're over, you're, you're satisfied. The action's been brought to an end. It has a completeness to it. We can rest. We have, we learn something. We see something. We enter into the beauty of a work of art. So every work of art, because it, it consists of a whole, um, is, um, has the aspect of beauty. We enter into the beauty of a form. Okay. In Chaucer's case, we talked about this, every... He, he generally writes in royal couplets, rhyming couplets. And we talked about it. That I suggested that that's not ornamental. It's not a window dressing. He's, you know when the, when the host says, stop those purgatorial rhymes. If you, look, if you watch the rhyme scheme in Topaz, it, it's, a, it's a variation on a rhyme scheme. And the passage that I took to you, the rhymes fall apart. Because the story's falling apart. Chaucer knows exactly what he's doing. So when the host says, stop those infernal rhyming. It's ironic because Chaucer's a master. And I suggested last time that the rhymes are not ornamental. They are a reflection of what Boethius, what Chaucer took from Boethius. That God is always at work. No matter what he's talking about, if you go back to the Knight's Tale when our seat was being buried, you remember everyone was grieving and I, I read it so you'd hear that you can't, you can't weep at that. You can only laugh. If you read it aloud, you keep hearing these rhymes. No matter what Chaucer's describing, you, and even if the rhyme, ry- you know, sometimes the rhyme will come at the end of a sentence, sometimes the sentence will run on, and you hear the rhyme and almost miss it until you pick it up in the next sentence. <clears throat> but you hear this constant, dong, 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 dong. It's like bells, Do you hear these sounds. It's like the bells in church, you know. So, you can't, well, if you read it aloud, you, you're aware, you're reading a story, you're participating in it, but there's this harmony in the background. Why did Chaucer do that? Because, formally, it's a perfect illustration of what Boethius says. We're never without order. I gave the example, go out in the backyard, use your eyes. A beautiful bird, a beautiful tree, beautiful dragonfly, beautiful flower, beautiful wife. You know, um... No matter where you look, there's a harmony everywhere. How many of us see it? We so take it for granted, but there it is. The poets are always calling us back to that. Remember, poetry is attempting to get us back to the garden, that harmony we lost. So it's taking us back to a world where, in which we're asked, invited to behold, to become one with, to know the pleasure of a harmony, no matter what's going on. And somewhere in the talk last week, I think I m- reminded everybody of that that statement that the priest that we met up in um, New Hampshire said to Doc, be thankful for everything. He meant that literally. We say that in the Mass, those are the words in the Mass, be thankful always and for everything. So when hard times come, something in us, that's why in that um, Night's Tale, you know, when, they're, when Charles is describing Theseus, the women are weeping, the men, you know, everybody's grieving. And you're getting this rhyme. I'm not going to tell you about this. I'm not going to tell you about this. I'm not going to tell you about. It. You can't read it without laughing. It's a way of saying, keep a joy when things are going bad, because God's there. That's our faith. So in an amazing way, he's 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 um, giving expression to some of the deepest things in a way that allows us to experience them without always being conscious of them, but they're there. Is that clear? Um, it's amazing, it's truly amazing. So, um, <coughs> poetry. One more thing, because we read that um, story where the woman said to the, to the, uh, um, oh god, I'm getting, who was it when she, when the devil picked up with him, was that the seminar? Member and, and she, he goes to try to cheat the woman. Yeah, it's the friar's,
2: it's the friars the story right. of the friars, so
1: yes. Yeah, yeah. And she, he tries to cheat her out of her pan and extort money from her, and she won't give it, and she curses him. and says, "Go to hell, you you know." And then, the devil takes him. Um. I and I asked you, I asked you this question because it was a really serious one. Did she cause him to go to hell? I mean, obviously the answer is no, because she says, "Go to hell unless you repent." But it's a stunning moment because her words um, have an efficacy. What she says happens. She leaves him a choice and he, um, he chooses not to. He says, no, I'm not going to repent. And immediately the devil takes him. Um, I, I just want to give this note on words because we've been talking about language from the very beginning. You know how important language is for anybody involved with literature, for any of us. Um, we, we think of terms in our age in terms of communication that facilitates something. Literary people think about words in terms of signification. It signifies something. This signifies this. Um, book signifies this. Um, very often what people miss is that words have an efficacy that speaking brings something into being, and Chaucer knows that. When Chaucer writes a poem, he's bringing something into being. It's a work of art, but he knows that work of art has an efficacy, a power. That's exactly like God in the fiat. God spoke, it was. We overlook that a lot, but it hap- that sort of thing is, makes up a good part of our life. If you're in a baseball game and the umpire says strike when the ball's pitched, It's a strike, the batter may disagree with him and there may be a fight, Mm -hmm. but he makes that so. That word declares it, right? Um, What's another example? Out, you know. I think the best example, and I'm losing examples right now, but for me the best example, it's stunning to me. When a man and woman stand in front of an altar and say, I do, I'm not kidding about it, think about those. A word's pronounced, I do. Is everybody following? That's a stunning, because do those words even begin to capture what's going to happen for the, I do. You bring a marriage into being with a word, I do. To me, it's stunning. You affect a marriage. Take those words away. Will the marriage have the same meaning? I don't think so. So words have this efficacy, this power for bringing things into being. That's what poets are doing. They're they're continuing the work of creation. They bring something into being. Um, Chaucer's doing it, and I, I just want you to remember that story when the woman says, go to hell unless you repent. And he says, I'm not gonna repent, he's gone. Her words carried something, even if she didn't cause it. You know, it's like saying, you're out do. Or <coughs> okay, <coughs> last thing, and then we'll look at the women. Um, <coughs> God, my mind is just, um, the, uh, um, I think it was the yeah, time before when you're doing the Reavers and the Miever, uh, the Milders tale and the Reavers, and I was reading those stories about Allison sticking her rear end, you know, and letting a fart and it was described as being thunderous and then um, um, Absalom goes away and he comes back and Allison goes to the bathroom to pee and um, Nicholas sticks his rear end out <laughs> and Allison takes that branding iron and fries his rear end, his, his arse. You know, and and the story in which the friar um, puts his hand under Thomas's rear and he farts on him and then says he will give something to the friar, to the house, um, when he can divide it into twelve, and he's left with this conundrum. It's really funny because it's presented as if it's a real conundrum, when obviously it's not. Chaucer just having fun because of the stupid way people get hung up on language you know, how do I do this, what's the way, it's like listening to two scholastics in the scholastic age with two scholastics arguing about each other over practically nothing. Um, Where am I going? Oh, and it was a question in my mind, Suzanne told me, because we we so often talk about classes, she, she, because you know that I'm so often when I'm reading a passage, I'm just looking at the passage, but she said she saw some heads go down a little bit embarrassed when I was I just want to say this, because I can't remember if I said it last week, but did um, did Christ eat,
0: yes. ever
1: eat? Yes, did he very. never not go to the bathroom? Oh,
0: all the time.
1: One Christ had the same <laughs> bodily <laughs> organs all men have. I hope that's clear. Yes. He was a man. Yes. means he had the same bodily organs all men have. Right. He, and, But he was God. You know. But, he, was man. Uh, but he, he took on our human nature. So in Chaucer's time... A Puritan world had not introduced itself into history. What the Puritan, with Cal, Calvin, hated the body. The Protestant mind generally looked, I mean, they think the effects of the fall were over, complete. That, the, that man was ruined, depraved. Now, think about growing up in a, in a family in which the attitude towards the, towards the human being is depravity, horror. Think about a Catholic family who's supposed to grow up knowing we're wounded, we are not depraved, we're wounded. Um, Chaucer is saying to us there's nothing to be ashamed about in our bodies nothing John Paul's book to me was one of those amazing experiences I've had just because of the timeliness of it he wrote that after three centuries of a Puritan mind had permeated the West Chaucer's helping us to laugh at ourselves in the body He's helping us to make fun because we're, you know, in our, in our, in our angelic pride, you know, we, wanna, we are so smart. What, what happens, I mean, what the body makes us realize is here's this very intellectual, academic, teacher, lawyer, doctor, scientist, walking down the street with all of his dignity and slipping on a banana peel. I mean, what comedy is a discrepancy? and one of the richest sources of pointing out discrepancies is our bodies we trip over ourselves all the time Suzanne was describing something about a month ago where she said she was i mean if you could if you could picture it i mean picture the body of it she was she took probably 20 minutes looking for her glasses i don't know if she suddenly appeared in a mirror and saw them on her head on her body she's in her head i mean, doesn't that happen to all of us? She's in her head, looking every place where she thought it should be. <laughs> Did you look at a mirror? I mean, what discovered no. it? Was? I, I put my
0: hand on my head.
1: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody just listen. I finally put my hand, one part of my body, on another part of my body. That is, I was no longer in my head and found it. Mm-hmm. We trip over our bodies. But just don't forget, Christ entered our bodies. He glorified them. The the whole end of the Divine Comedy, when we went through it at the Paradiso, was a glorification, an affirmation of the body. Christ took it on. Chaucer's in that world before the Puritan element came in. So he laughs at things more easily than we do. If people use bad words today, I mean, people usually drop their heads. Um, Chaucer wouldn't. T.S. Eliot said, there is no word, no word, none, that is not inherently poetic. It's what we do with it that matters. Chaucer's faith is extraordinary. He loves people, he loves the human body. He helps us to laugh at it all the time. So, Shafali, give your question. I, thought, I think you
0: answered him. An no, question. I want because oh. come on,
1: what you, you, had, you had a question. I want you to ask us, that. I think it's really important. So the partner's
0: tale, um, the three thieves come upon the pot of gold but according to Boethius, all fortune is good. But because of the fortune that they found, The gold. They, the gold. Yeah. They all end up um, killing each other. But I think you answered that because it wasn't, it was their decision that.
1: How did I answer it? Where did I answer it?
0: Early on. <laughs> it's like, boy, if I could have just waited. Because <laughs> you were talking about Boethius, and you were saying, you know, God is always at work, and um, it's the choices we make that bring about that. But the fortunes there—they could have divided right. it and right. had right. The fortune and goodness.
1: Yeah. What um, I was God. thinking, of, yeah, no, what I was thinking about is when I mentioned the. Uh, who's the one who's? It it. It's not the friar who, to, Trying to extort money from the woman in the pan, yeah. the tale. is that the Friar's Tale? Yeah, yeah because you, you know, I mean, that's that's a moment of fortune. She says, "Go to hell unless you repent," right. and he doesn't. So, the, remember, the the extension of that all fortune is good, or no fortune is bad, is um, m- because another way of saying that we got it explicitly in the in the the Knight's Tale with. Um, Theseus, make a virtue of necessity. We, we are asked to act like God. So no matter what we're facing, no matter how bad it is, I was laughing at it because I was thinking the garage door goes out, the ice things, you know, things are not the way I want them, we're grumbling all the time. What Boethius <laughs> is saying is we can't control fortune, even though we'd like to think we can. There's a lot we can control, but there's a lot we can't. Take advantage of every moment to, to make a virtue of it. That's why, you know, in the prayers for death or sickness or to, to, to always be thankful. Because when we get to a point, if we get to a point where we make that black, it's something we're bringing to that moment, um, not the moment itself. So when the guy, when she says, go to hell unless you repent, it's, it's a moment of fortune. I mean, he's got a choice. He chooses band, and so do the thieves. They kill each other. They kill each other. You know. Um, it's re- I, I'm so glad you brought it up because we're gonna we're gonna look at something like that in the stories involving the women because there are choices that um, involved in what they do. The, one of the serious questions is: um, Are they doing? You know, your your question goes so to that. Are the are, are the, way these, the ways they respond to the situations they're in reflective of a virtue or... I mean, what are their choices and what they do? Wife of Bath, Dorigen, you know, any of the women we're looking at, what do they do? Can somebody with a bad heart, who, whose motives are bad, will that person bring a good out of the circumstances he's in? Will his... For, remember Dante's line the women who have the intelligence of love, you can't can't hear that kind of person, whatever that person does with reason, without hearing love. Look at the political debates going on today. Is what you hear the intelligence of love, the reason of love? What I'm hearing is hatred, envy, vindictiveness, lying. And they're all using reason, both sides. We were just doing Merchant of Venice at um, Elizabeth Ann Seton, and we were going through the courtroom scene and watching the Christians use reason and Shylock. They're all using reason. But if you looked at the, the emotions, the motives behind their reason, the last thing you could say is reason is expressing love. Reason can be witty, it can be smart, and still be arrogant, proud, envious. So, what we do with our Circumstance, fortune matters. What, are, are we trying to bring a good out of it or not? And, and in both of those examples, in the Friar's Tale, if that was the one, and then the, you know, the, whatever, the Partner's Tale, um, fought, I mean, Chaucer is showing us. And it's really interesting because, uh, and it's, I, I made the point last time, it's, it's, a, it's a serious question whether any of the pilgrims are damned, lost souls. But in two stories we read last week they were dealing with characters in the stories who were lost souls who were damned we're going to go outside of that in just a minute because I'm going to raise a question about but can we go forward can we look at the women do you have any more questions about what we've been doing? You should stop that you are too good your questions your I know yeah, her questions have always been good
0: What's that last word? Good
1: church? Functionaries? Functionaries. What's the matter with your eyes? <laughs> bad. Bad. <laughs> Blurred. My writing is getting impossible. It's just getting worse and worse. <clears throat> worse yeah. and worse.
2: It
0: is. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. You said it. I just agreed. <laughs>
1: <laughs> boy is that Eve like you said it I was just a green <laughs> God. Um, give me the
0: apple <laughs> okay
2: do volume two.
1: <laughs> let's um, do the women um, I, you know or I mean if you put it together you see that I've been doing just organizing them not completely arbitrary I've just picked out a couple of important categories. The first four stories, first three stories, I treated as um, Chaucer's movement into our ordinary human world. The Knight's Tale is very noble. Miller's Tale deals with courtly romance. Again, Reaver's Tale, somewhat courtly romance. So we go from a treatment of courtly romance in which lovers um, passionately love each other and come to a point of wanting to kill each other. The men want to kill each other over Emily, remember, in the Knight's Tale. In the Miller's Tale, Nicholas and uh, Absalom want to love Alison. She's married. I mean, that, that's the courtly romance paradigm. One of the points that emerges in the courtly, marina, or the courtly romance tradition is marriage can never completely satisfy the passions because the passions always want to go beyond bounds. Passions are limitless, Right? You want something. Marriage puts a bound on it, a law. There's a boundary. You're not supposed to go beyond that. So marriage is a hardship because it means you have to restrain yourself. So in the courtly romance tradition there are always these lovers who love generally a woman and often a wife. Um, so we, we watched Chaucer's treatment of an, of the courtly romance tradition move from stages to stages, from something very noble to less noble to something awful. So the the two men die and noble, or one of them, they they have to learn to to deny themselves in the Theseus story. In the Miller story it gets laughable. In the Reeve story it gets vicious. Remember it ends with the two men kicking the Miller and having sex with the women. And then we enter into this the rest of the canterbury tales so we have this wonderful sequence dealing with courtly romance in a downward movement a descent into the ordinary things the next set of tales all had to do with church functionaries they're all church officials chaucer's really clear there's nothing wrong with the church we're not getting critiques of the church he doesn't bring it up but the, the corruptions are in the people themselves, what they're doing with the friar, the pardoner, the seminar are all really corrupt people. So we looked at that, um, and what, one of the things I suggested is to whom more is given, more is expected. Those men are scurrilous men. They're flirting with spiritual evils, maybe even to the point of damnation, because they're, they're using church realities, spiritual realities, for personal benefit. Um, they're selling favors, and that one passage where the man is saying to the woman um, that he saw her son passing. I wanted to read it, but I didn't, but you know, she just lost her son the week before. He's trying to flatter her to get her to give him money. So he says, I saw your son passing into the heaven, and all of the other friars at the order, you know, back of the house, saw her too. You can you could imagine the effect that that would have on a woman who's grieving the loss of her child. She would feel supported in her religious grief. you know, And he's, he's extorting it. He's using it. So we went to another level of reality in those men. And it, they were men. Church men. Now we're looking at women. Okay? So um, let me just briefly... Um, summarize the stories and then I've got a couple of questions to put to you guys. The Man of Law's tale has to do with this young woman. um, It's told by the Man of Law, he's like a lawyer, but the um, assumed backstory, the backdrop, is the world of merchant um, exchanges. He tells the story of these merchants going to Rome and Um, um, from Syria, and they are so taken by Constance that when they go back to Syria and tell their sultan about this woman, Constance, sorry, but this, this is new for me. Um, the sultan is so taken that he wants to marry her. And when the um, Constance's father, the emperor, hears about it, he, he, he's not gonna let the marriage go through because he's Christian. When the sultan hears that, he agrees to convert. So he converts to Christianity, but his mother is so outraged, she says, I would rather die before I deny the law, the Muslim, the Islamic law. So the the, the her son, the sultan, has all the court convert. A dinner is offered to, in a celebration. Constant comes. She doesn't want to marry him, but She's obedient to her father and comes. That night, when they're all at the banquet, the Sultan's mother kills everybody, including her son. Because in her, her mind, he violated Islamic law. Deserves to die. She spares Constance and sends her off, remember, in a boat, and she ends up um, in Northumberland, which is on the east, northeast coast of England. It's between England and Scotland. And there she meets this couple who are not Christian. The wife is so taken by Constance that she converts. And one day, when they're walking on a beach, a blind man—a blind man—recognizes Constance. She's not been there before. He knows who she is. The husband's taken by the miracle and he converts. Um, a king th- or a knight falls in love with Constance and declares himself. She re- she refuses him. I, I didn't do a, a summary in the in the. Uh, and the study guide who gave um, She refuses him. He's so outraged that he, and he's tempted by Satan. So that night he sneaks into the bedroom where Constance and the wife are sleeping and kills the, the wife and plants the dagger next to Constance. So the next morning he puts the blame on her and everybody thinks that Constance, or a number of people think that Constance actually killed this woman. The son comes home, and here's the story, and he's not convinced by the knight, so he asks for somebody to bring a book. When the knight puts his hand on the book to swear, he's struck down dead. And um, the the king is so taken by what happens and, and by Constance's virtue and her beauty that he marries her. He, let's see, I'm getting away from this. They have a child together, he has to go off to war, and the mother of the knight, who was struck dead, is st- the mothers are not coming off very well in this story. Remember the sultan's mother killed everybody. The mother of the knight that got struck down is so full of hate, she wants to kill um, Constance. So she sends a letter to the king while he's away, lying to her. king says he's going to be faithful anyway. And she forges letters coming back that justify sending Constance off. So once again, she's put in the boat, the same boat, and set off to sea. And remember here, that we were doing this with the merchant, if you, ever, if you guys ever enjoy Pericles you want, or Shakespeare, you want to read the play Pericles. It's one of the late romances. It belongs in that group of plays that I call sacramental, with um, Winter's Tale, Twelfth Night, and per- Pericles is an extraordinary play. If, you, if you've read the Constance story you'll, and read Pericles, you'll see the similarity. Constance spends a lot of her time at sea. And those of you who remember the Odyssey, remember that the greater part of the story takes place at sea. The sea for all these poets is, represents the shifting world of fortune. It's the unknown, shifting. You can't control it. It's not our home. The sea is not our home. It's it's not where we belong. Land is our home. That's where we belong. But the sea is constantly in literature. It's an image of something shifting going on that we don't always see. So if there are spiritual realities going on, the sea is an image of it. Um, For Dante and Shakespeare, the sea is often associated with grace. You can't see it working, but it's there. In almost all great writers, um, the sea sea as an image represents something's changing that you can't see. Constance is always at sea. She's always under the protection of God. She was spared in the first time, she's spared the second time, now she's at sea again. So in some ways we're meant to feel that something inwardly, inwardly, is happening with her in all these instances. At the, in the top of the uh, Paradiso for Dante, just before he sets off into the heavens and the paradise of the heavens, he talks about his trip in terms of a sea. And he says, be careful. He, and he's warning us off. He says, you don't want to accompany me in the rest of this journey because it's really, de- unless you've got a really strong faith. Because he's entering a sea, a, a world of of intangibles, things that are hard to get a hold of, that are going to test his faith. So she's at sea once again. Um, Meanwhile, the emperor is returning from having gone to the sultan's land and executed the people there for killing all the Christians. Remember all the Muslims that have been killed. While he's at sea, he comes across uh, Constance's bark, picks her up and takes her to Rome. While all of that's going on, the king who married Constance, I um, remember um, the, the, the mother of that knight took her off. The king returns. Um, when he returns, um, he kills the woman, the mother, for what she did. He goes to Rome to confess, to repent. So the emperor is now take, returning to Rome with Constance, and the king is returning. Um, when the king sees the resemblance between the son, remember that, that he conceived by Constance, he immediately sees the resemblance and rushes to her, and they're reunited. They're invited to a dinner by the emperor that night, and when they come to the dinner, the emperor recognizes Constance as his daughter. It's like the winner's tale. I mean, there are all these reunions. So, a couple of things just to hold on here, to go forward. Every time Constance is in danger, she says a prayer, and every time her prayer is answered. When she's sent on the boat by the yeoman, um, when the, when the mother sends her off, the yeoman gets on the boat intending to rape her. She sends a prayer to Mary and she offers a prayer to Mary and somehow he trips up and falls in the water and drowns. There's, there's not a, a conflict that um, she's drawn into that doesn't present her with a danger from which she doesn't get free by prayer. She, prayer she, her prayers are constantly answered. Something miraculous is going on in the background of the whole story. And I think one of the things we're meant to take away is, um, um, first of all, that that God approves he's working with her. Um, And virtue tends to open itself. I mean, it goes to um, Shefali's question again, you know, that we've seen two characters refuse grace. I'm not gonna repent. Remember the guy said, and the devil takes him away. But there are moments when a person is virtuous. And I, I, I don't think Ch- Ch- um, Chaucer would have known that martyrs aren't spared. I mean, they, they die. But those are moments of grace. But I think we are meant to feel that God, God works with virtuous people, that virtue cooperates with Him. When a person's being virtuous, no matter, she's facing death again and again and again. And she, make a virtue of necessity. What she does with it is good, and she's blessed. Um, so, I think one of the things that we're seeing, and uh, here at the outset, I'm going to quickly try to get through these three other women, just, the stories are much easier. Mary radically alters the way women are looked at. If you look at the women in the ancient world, even the most, let's say, Cruisa, um, Aeneas's wife, whoever you look at, however good they are, they don't approach women in the Middle Ages because the women in the Middle Ages have Mary. So Mary radically alters the psyche of man. In himself, woman, the way she sees herself, the way men look at women. I mean, still their natural instincts are there. Um, But she she brings into focus a whole dimension of docility and obedience that radically changes the way we look at um, women. And Constance exemplifies that. Again and again and again. She's trusting, prayerful, virtuous. Um, The prioress, there's not much to say about her. Um, You you know that she's presented as being very fussy, very meticulous, too fussy. I mean, Chaucer's partly laughing, and you can see why. She's a prioress. Um, Very dainty. Um, She's a church representative. So she stands alongside with the men, except in contrast to the men, she's good. Um, and she tells the story of this little boy who's devoted to Mary, who sings this song, and constantly in his devotion, he loves Mary, and when he's going through the Jewish ghettos, the Jews hate him because he's celebrating Mary, and one day they slit his throat, and the mother can't find him, goes searching when he doesn't come home, and um, and then she comes upon this area in the ghetto and hears her child singing. So she goes and finds her child dead, but he's singing. And so this strange anomaly, he's, his way of describing it is he's not confined to, natu- to nature's laws, that something's happening to him that's miraculous. Mary comes to him in state and says to him, um, she, pla- she places a grain on his tongue and says to him that, that grain will be removed at his death, and at I think the burial. abbot removes it at his,
0: burial.
1: at his burial. And the abbot removes it, and the singing stops. He's at peace because she says, "When that happens, I will cut this. Is, I will come to receive you." And she comes. Um, the abbot takes the grain off, and he he dies. And we're meant to feel that he's at peace. And we we have to have some sense that. He was consoled when she appeared to him, because she said, I will come for you. So um, there's the Prioress's story. It's a story about the innocence of a boy who who had this devotion to Mary, and who's involved in a miracle. The Virgin comes, places this grain, the abbot takes it away, he's put to rest. So there's a fulfillment to his singing in a miracle. Um, In the Dorigen story one of the last ones in the Franklins tale. you remember that Vargas the knight loved her and declared his love, and she was reluctant at first, but finally gave in. And they made these vows that they would um, um, g- give her sovereignty because that's what she wanted, but on the condition that, that she made it clear in public that no matter what happened, sh- she would never undermine or impugn that sovereignty. So long as in public she made it clear that he was her lord, they would go ahead. So there's this great trust and honor between them but this understanding that he would give her sovereignty but he, he asked that she do that and she, that's something she wanted to do to make clear that he was her lord and, and they had a good marriage. He leaves and she's so terrified that he might be killed on his return by these rocks off the coast you remember she almost dies. The, the agony of the thought of losing her husband. Interesting thing because she's afraid for her husband's life she makes a stupid deal this another a courtly lover approaches her declares his love she says no and then she says foolishly um, I will if you can make those rocks disappear thinking that it's not going to happen well he gets a magician a law figure a student who can work illusions he's by he's like a poet he, he worked, this is Plato's image of the poet he works these illusions and he makes the rocks disappear so Aurelius comes to make good on the agreement to make love with her, and she has to face this dilemma. It's when we see a number of women in the story f- um, have to face. She's either going to kill herself or shame herself by going through with it. Um, and I think, given the choices, she probably would have killed herself. But her husband comes home, she speaks to him honestly, and he says, um, um, I, I would rather you hold yourself to the truth than you break an oath. How many stories is Chaucer dealing with giving oath? Our word. It's one of the underlying themes through all of the canon. We see it again and again and again. When a man gives his word, when he says something, it means it. Because that's the fiat. God spoke, it was. When you say, I do, it's meant. You hold yourself to your word. Because once you break it, you break something in yourself. So the husband says, um, I would rather you be true to your word. So like the knights in the, in, the, uh, in the Theseus story, he has to give up himself, let his wife do something that he would not want her to do, to hold herself to her truth. She has to go do something she doesn't want to do, to honor her word. So she goes, when she sees Aurelius, he's, he notices her sadness and asks her why, and she tells him why, and he's so taken by her humility and her courage that he releases her from the promise. That leaves him with a, a an awful loan because he had to pay the law student a fortune to get him to move in. He goes to ask the law student if he can <laughs> take out his loan over time, pay off his loan over time. The law student asks why and when Aurelius tells him he's so taken that he releases him from his bond. So it's a story about people making good on their oaths. And more importantly, it's it's a story about the efficacy of love. that genuine Christ-like love can make things happen. People, people are, they, they give up their word, their money, their, they, their claims on people. So an element of the miraculous is there, that there are these amazing changes taking place in people in response to an act of love. So that's the Dorigen story. She's a remarkable woman, just a very courageous woman, obedient, and humble, and um, holding herself to her word. Wife of Bath. I'm going to end with that because I want to quickly get to some questions I have for you guys. Um, the wife, if you you all know, the Wife of Bath prologue is probably twice as long as any story in the book. She she goes on. She has a number of themes. One of them is um, one of them. Got, one of them is that marriage, when when she's quoting, she, she, by the way, she, she's in a text. She's a part of a story that the, she's telling. Right? She's telling a story. In her story, she's referring to all these other texts, these stories, all of them by men who are renouncing marriage, calling marriage a woeful condition, and she's quoting all these references from the Bible to make clear marriage is not a woeful position. It's Perfectly natural. And it's something that she doesn't want to give up clearly because she really enjoys the sex. So one of her themes is marriage is good. The other is sex is good. Oh, the other. Sorry. Sex is good. Um, oh, and, and it's her... Um, that All of these men who have these awful stories about women, the weaknesses and the failures of women, don't know what they're talking about. So those are her themes. She goes on and on and on, quoting references and scholars. So she's quoting authorities, and they're all men. They're all men. Hmm. So she's (coughs) looking to, I want to be careful with my words here, to get support for her own life by these appeals to authority. Because that's a natural form of argument. When you're making, the doctor gives you a, um, a diagnosis, you've got an authority. A lawyer does, you know, she's she's doing what people do. Um, she goes on and on, that's her theme, and it it becomes very clear she is dauntless in the presence of men. She is not gonna be put off. When she's interrupted twice, once by the friar and once by the, the partner, and she tells them to shut up until she finishes her story. She's just not gonna be she's not gonna be put down, she's not gonna take anything from men. If somebody comes up to her, you know she's just going to walk over that guy. So by the time you read the prologue, you've got this image of, of somebody who's larger than life. That's Suzanne's way of describing it. Lar- she's a larger-than-life story. One of the, the larger-than-life characters, maybe, maybe the most large, larger-than-life characters in the whole of the Canterbury Tales. The longest prologue by far, so we get a, a filled-out glimpse of her. So she's this energetic, dauntless woman, um, she's gone through five husbands she's, <laughs> and she goes through them and she said that the first three um, all died, it's, I think she wore them out and they were a little bit older, she got money out of them, she got property out of them, mm-hmm. she used that property and money as a threat to others, she loved the last one most, interesting, she, she's made her case against men, how prejudiced they are. Um, she she loves the last one most because he was the one that was least willing to give her what she wanted Um, and she describes this habit he has of reading these texts telling about all the foibles of women she finally gets so sick of hearing him preach about how awful women are that she picks up the book tears out three pages and throws them in the fire The husband gets up and knocks her on the floor, this is so funny I'm assuming you laughed at it, knocks her on the floor out, or, or for a second, knocks her on the floor, and she's going, you've killed me, you've killed me, and and you get her running all this stuff by him, he's so overcome with guilt that he says he'll never do anything more again, and he gives himself to her, submits himself to her, and they love each other forever after well, so, it, it, you know, it's a good thing, it's a good life between the two of them. So when she finished, when we're through with the prologue, we get a very rich picture of this the woman herself almost becomes a character because she's so large, you know, hearing all these stories. She tells her story, and it's a story about a knight who rapes a woman, so uses his masculine power to have his way with the woman, rapes her. Um, he's, he's taken by the king and is going to be executed. Interesting. The queen, a woman, asks that his life be spared if he can find out what all women want. So, the condition for his life is that he answered this question what all women want. He goes all over the world. He hears riches, dresses, wealth, prettiness, home, you know, all these things. And finally, on the last day before he has to return to court, he comes across the scene in a forest where this old witch is dancing with these maidens. He appears, they go off. He's left with the old hag, and um, he tells her what he's doing, and she says she can give him the answer and guarantees his life. She whispers in his ear. He goes back to the court, and he tells the queen what all women want is sovereignty. Yeah, control over husbands. They want to be able to control their husbands. And the queen immediately okay. acknowledges that that's the truth. I mean, by the way, if you've read the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know that in the Odyssey, Calypso and Circe are the greatest temptations that Odysseus faces. That. For the nine of the nine and a half years, he's under the control of these women who want him. So so we've got all this treatment. Anyway, it comes down to this. The queen acknowledges and says, you're absolutely right. And at that moment, the old hag steps forward and says, "Um, he owes me his life. Because it was her answer that spared him. And the condition of giving the answer was that he marry her. Um, That night, the two meet. She's ready to go to bed with him. He's looking, he's whining and moping because he doesn't want to go to bed with his old hag. And she says to him, I think a spirit of compassion, you have a choice. You can have me young and unfaithful, beautiful wife, or this old hag that will remain faithful all your life. Um, And he says the choice is yours. He gives her the sovereignty. And she, having the sovereignty, she suddenly is transformed into this beautiful woman. And obviously, the two go to bed and enjoy the night. So, now let me stop. Those are the four stories, those are the four women. Um, let me touch on, let's see. You
0: forgot to say that she gives both. Sorry? You forgot to say that she gives him both.
1: Say, Doc, go ahead.
0: She gives him both, she gives him a choice. Mm-hmm. He leaves the choice both to both. her. Mm -hmm. Because he did, she gives him both. Both what? Both the best of both. She'll be faithful
1: and she'll be beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Um, (coughs) A couple of couple of questions. Some of them are easy, and some of them I don't think are going to be easy at all. Who has the better of it in Chaucer, the men or women? The women.
0: women.
1: Flesh it out, Sue. Go ahead. Just
0: well, I haven't gone back and read some of the ones we didn't have assigned.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but but the women, first of all, they usually do get the sovereignty um, in the end, or they get the choices, the best choices, or they're the better people in the men's story, of the functionaries anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like to think there's a little bit of wisdom in that, but also there's a certain amount of wine control.
1: On the like, part of the women. On the part of the women. Yeah.
0: Um, but things usually turn out better in the women's.
1: Can you say why?
0: <clears throat> well, there seems to be more depth and less selfishness with the women. And yet, the women also like to have control, control. or at least equality. Constance? And, well, I haven't read all that one yet. Because mm-hmm. I got behind. I thought we were D'Origin. a behind. Dorigen? Well... She discuss. She has the wisdom to discuss the sharing of that. She has, she has the gumption, I guess, you know, forwardness to ask for the control and the willingness to say, I don't, I won't make it look that way. Um, so there's there's kind yeah. of a little more depth to be yeah. in the women's characters yeah. than in. But I haven't read a lot yeah. of the regular men's yeah. characters.
1: Before we go, because I want to stay on that, I'm just. See what the rest are using before we go any farther. Is there a difference between the word control and sovereignty? Well,
0: probably. I wasn't using the word sovereignty. You did it, but in the story, it says all women. They want. I mean, he was right. The answer was women want to control. Yeah, men. but the word
1: sovereignty. I don't know. Where it's, you, oh, it, it's repeated over and over. It's the, it's a word more used than a control, I think. But but it's the one sovereign. they use. But but just take it for a second. It's, is there a difference or are they the same?
0: They seem different. A what is, is it? Sovereignty. Well,
1: okay, she's, she's, Well, sovereignty she's is kingly,
0: okay. like a cal- your sovereign leader. Your so- they don't say your leader in control. It has a whole different connotation to me. What is the difference? A sovereign royalty or something. Control often has a negative, particularly for the wife to control the yeah. husband. Yeah. Very negative connotation.
1: Yeah. Does, go ahead, did you have one? Well, well, for me, the, the difference is how you use it, I guess, in a sense. That
2: control, to me, is more like you're controlling whether it's a good thing or not. Uh, sovereignty, in, in a sense, is you're in, you're in control, but you're, you're not always forcing it. In some ways, you're in control because you're making the right decisions, doing the right things, and so people defer to you. Uh, So I guess maybe everybody would say this. uh, Sovereignty makes me think of good leadership versus Mm -hmm. control as someone who has the ability to enforce what they want, whether it's the right thing or not. For me, that's the distinction. I
0: think of sovereignty as being uh, beneficence. You know, somebody who looks out for those Mm
1: -hmm. in his Mm -hmm. Mm
0: Not control, but in his kingdom sovereignty.
1: Responsibility. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: Yeah. I would say the difference is this. I mean, it's just—it's not saying much more than you guys are. But I would say sovereignty is an inherent authority. It's inherent in a king. It should—it should be. Sometimes
0: it's just inherited.
1: I know, but but I—but I—but I—I don't want to go. I just wait, Sue. I want to sovereignty traditionally from the beginning. A lord is sovereign. That, I mean it goes to Linda's efforts. she said you know that sovereignty implies an inherent power I'm gonna say it comes from Adam Christ God that sovereignty is so inherent in that sense and I think by that fact the tendency of some it does by the way does that mean all people don't abuse their sovereignty absolutely not so I'm not saying that what I am saying is the word sovereignty it tends to mean an inherent power authority and for anybody with the traditional sense of words, it would go back to Adam and Christ. Control often involves an ego. Mm-hmm. That, that when you're controlling somebody, you usually turn a person into a thing for yourself. So controlling another person is a very, very different thing. Now, does Chaucer play with them? Yeah, but cause when he asks, you know, what, 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 what do all women want? And it comes down mm-hmm. to sovereignty. I mean, it's so often something like that. And and the Dorigen story, where they give each other sovereignty. I think on Chaucer's mind, he knows that in Adam and Eve, you've got, I mean, the man was given authority over the woman, but there was no contest. There was no conflict. Their authority was inherent in both of them. They were one until the fall. And then things change, but... But I think it, Chaucer was aware of that. He knew, in fact, the poem that I wanted to read this week, I think I've read it before, called Gentilesa. He calls gentilesa that inherent gentleness that we have from Adam and from God. And it carries an inherent authority. It, it, I mean, what Bev said anybody who, who is one with that authority will only be one with it when that person's working for the good of another. If, if the person uses his power for himself, that other person becomes a thing, and he's taking control. So I, I myself would, whether, you know, whether they get confused or blurred here, Chaucer certainly knew that, and if you read enough of him, you'll see the use of sovereignty and um, this whole issue of control, particularly for the wife of Bath. You know, but Go back. Anybody else on that first question I had, um, the women, who gets the better of it, or... I've got a couple of other questions, too, that I want to get in. Um, um, Let me make this statement. If if you could hold off arguing, just if if you've got differences, because I want to get to it. I'm going to say that the women generally are far more virtuous than the men. Generally, in the stories and even in the storytelling, that the men... so long as they're caught up in the world, they're working in the world, they tend to be preoccupu- they they tend to be motivated by pride and envy and aggressive. Getting back, all the men want to get back at each other. When you go through the stories, when one person tells a story, the other one wants to get back at him. There's this sense of rivalry and competitiveness as if they belong to a business world. Because you know that even though they're church officials, they're they're actually presented as if they were in a business world trying to make money for themselves. So Chaucer is showing, showing us a corrupt aspect of the people in the church who are supposed to be serving it, but who use the church for self-gain. So it's like an image of the market mentality that we have in our day. That's why it's so human, that's why it speaks to us. These men are greedy, envious, proud. They, don't want to put, they want to get back. The women are relatively free of that. Okay. Now look at the wife of Bath. Where does she fit in here? Where do we, how do we, because she is a larger-than-life figure, she, um, she throws the men off, don't interrupt me, shut up until I finish my, you know. Um, how do we look at her?
2: Relative to the other women
1: or? Yeah, and the men.
2: I, I guess I have a little bit of a problem with what you just said because two of the men tell what I think are the best stories, and they tell it about the best women. You know, if you Which look stories at, you? You look at the Man of Law, Law. and the Franklin. Yeah. Uh, tale.
1: And the Knight's Tale. You could include that but, too. You
2: could, you could. But I mean, if you look at Constance, for example, <coughs> I mean, for me, she's the. Personification of Boethius theology practiced as it should be. Mm-hmm. For me, the the wife of Bath is almost the opposite of that, and so and and the prior is, you know, I, for me she she wasn't quite what she appeared to be, and so to me there are two women telling tales. And I, that are, in, in, in my mind, about, you know, women or, or men that are flawed, and we have two men that are telling tales of women that are about as good as you can get right. in all of the stories. So but, I'm not sure, because if I look at each, each one of the four women, they are, they are very different and kind of move along a,
1: a scale of the best to the worst. You know? Go back, because you said a few minutes ago, Fred, um, I, I can't remember how you put it, but you, you said her, the wife of Bath, is an antithesis to it, but you didn't go into it. Um, wh- wh- why do you say that of her? Like, well, what for me about her?
2: The, the story, and you know, I'm, I'm probably out on a limb somewhere, but for me, the wife of Bath was a satire and a satire. I mean, her, prologue, her whole prologue is kind of like a confession, but instead, in, instead of being penitent, in that confession. She's proud of what she's done. Right. And she's willing to bend scripture or stories or anything else to support her lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and then her story and it's the the, the story, you know, in itself is, um, a little satirical in its own right too. I mean, if, if it were me and I built the scale with Constance on this end, the wife of Bath would be on the other end. Yeah, and Dorigen is right behind Constance and the the prioress's tale is right behind her because for me the Prioress, she's supposed to be the head of a a, a nunnery mm-hmm. or and, and in, But instead of instead of wearing like a, you know, a, a rosary with a crucifix she's wearing beads and she's instead of <laughs> you know, dressing like you might expect one of those folks to dress, yeah. she's more got a courtly appearance to herself. Yeah, yeah. And, and when she tells her story, there's a lot of prejudice in that story. I mean, you, 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 you kind of look at the, the Jews and you sort of think about Shylock in The Merchant of Venice. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, if, you know, Shylock, because, I mean, the Jews are all focused on money and nothing mm-hmm. else, right? Yeah. So to me, there's a very, there's there's a lot of difference in those four yep. of characters.
1: Yeah. Anybody else on The Wife of Bath? because I want to, I want to, we've got to talk, we've got to conclude here, and I, but there's a lot to say about her and I want to end with her. Anybody else on The Wife of
0: There was an idea that popped in my head because of the discussion about control and sovereignty. And in her prologue she wants control. I mean she, she you're right, she backs it up, she uses all kinds of things to bolster mm-hmm. that. But in her story, she really is satisfied with shared sovereignty or mutual sovereignty.
1: You mean the old hag?
0: Yes, well, yeah. That,
1: yes, you know, yeah. I just end, Yes. that's
0: where the woman right. is most satisfied. But I want to be
1: really, because yes. I think it's, no, no, it's, it's, no, it's so right. important. No. Yeah. But no, go. no. And, go I, ahead.
0: and so, in a way, you see the ugliness of the control and the more perfection when you can. Attains sovereignty, so that's yeah. probably the way he uses words. And if you have something else, but I do want to come back because I I had a question about words even from last
1: week. Hold it, we because we've wait. got I I give one second before a couple of thoughts because we've got we got to get out of here because people are going no, no, right. to okay, sure.
0: um,
1: okay, as quickly as I can because we we need to get out of here. I, but I really want your attention on this because this is to me crucial. A couple of interesting thoughts. Nobody, nobody has a prologue close to the wife of Bath in length. And if you look at it, what she's doing is justifying herself constantly. So you're watching a woman argue with authority, but what she's doing, directly or indirectly, is justifying what she's doing. And you know that's part of her technique with men. This is what you men do, and she finds fault with them so that she can justify herself. So she goes on at length justifying herself, and she makes it clear, ironically, that um, she has no qualms about using men. And I I I don't want to bring in the word control, I'm using them. Hmm. She makes men objects. She gets their money, she gets their wealth, and she makes it clear that she threatens the men, and she's even going to withhold her sex unless they do what she wants. She uses them, she uses her sex, she uses her property, she uses her wealth. Now here's the funny where the irony is so profoundly deepened for me. She uses all these religious texts she's justifying herself constantly she uses men um, she's she's in ironically putting herself in those lists by what she's doing. what she's doing indirectly is justifying the men even while she's pointing her finger at it because she herself is not the most attractive figure in the you know, Canterbury Tales. So ironically, as much as she's using these men to support her arguments, she's actually showing how right there. She's including herself in those texts by her own, her own text by herself. So hold on to that thought because I want to come back. Just hold on to that for one second. It's interesting in the story when she tells the story of the old hag that a miracle takes place. Something along the line. Because she's transformed. Mm-hmm. She becomes, she becomes this extraordinarily beautiful thing, beautiful creature. There's something humbling about it, you know, in that exchange. Remember, he's like Arseton Paladon. The knight has to give up his will. He owes the king of death his life. She gets it for him, so he owes her life. He has to give up his will again, it's over and over again. The men and women, what Chaucer's celebrating in this story is a Christ-like, self-sacrificial love. That's the ideal running through this story, giving up oneself for another. Arcite, Palamon, Emily, Constance, Dorigen, Avaragus, you can go on and on. Does the wife of Bath ever get close to that? Absolutely not. The interesting thing, though, is in that story, she shows this woman, this ugly old hag, transformed by that night's giving her that choice. So my question is, was the beauty always, so is this indirectly her her story, an expression of a secret longing in herself, that she can't get to verbally with her head because if you turn that head on, it's gonna do nothing but argue? Is this an expression of a longing in her, this old hag who's made beautiful, number one, number two, was the beauty always there in the old hang? Mm-hmm. Or was it the humility of the night um, who transformed it by giving her the choice? And hold on, I want to say this, because this is we, this going back to Plato and Christ. In the pre-Christian world, you know that the greatest virtue was justice. We've been through this again and again. It's the law of justice. Christ comes and offers his love Not because we deserve it as a matter of justice, because as a matter of justice, we're damned. Yeah? So justice is what's due. Christ comes in to offer his love with respect to something we don't deserve. If we did, we're damned. But the effect of what he did becomes transformative. Because loving us the way he does makes us more lovable and according to the stories, we can bring that love to others, and it can transform their lives, just as Dorjan did. When she gave up her will, went to you know, um, um, Aurelius, and then he goes to the law student, <coughs> they're transformed. We've seen a number of stories. The king, the sultan, sees the woman change, the court converts, the, the, the mother's horrified and kills them all. But in a number of stories, people are transformed by the love one person brings to another. So is the, is the story that the wife of Bath tells indirectly this longing of something in her? I, I don't have an answer. It's just a question that I want to ask. But, but let me end to go back to my first question. Um, who's worse? The partner or the wife of Bath? Because they both use people. Or let me put it differently. Is, is the partner in danger, spiritually in danger of being a lost soul? Is he in danger of being damned? Remember, we're not in Dante's world. Now, I, I so have to impress this. We get stories about people who are damned. But these people are on their way to a pilgrimage, we're not supposed to take God's name in vain. So the question of damnation is dangerous for is it um, so we can't damn the the partner, but at least I can say he's really flirting with spiritual dangers here. So let me just put it that way. He's not a good person. He's, just, he's, he's up front about. He, he's been oh, brazen about saying how much he uses people. He has no no qualms about it. You have to hit the the, the center. That hit that. And
0: then yeah. Yeah. yeah there. At the door. There. <laughs> That, too. Yeah. Track. Track. Or track. Wow. <laughs> How long do these pictures go
1: on? <laughs> so, quickly, because we got to go. we got to get a... So, the, the partner is spiritually at risk. Let me put it that way. Is the wife of Bath. I
2: think the wife of Bath is
1: worse. Why? I,
2: if, if, if the prologue is any indication, I, I think she... She has to come with her badness. Yeah. The partner has. He's bad and those. And, you know, so he may he may at some point be on the point of
1: redemption because part of redemption is ultimately realizing that you really are... But can you know it and still not repent? Well, you yeah, oh, can. Yeah. Because remember, one guy said, I refuse to repent. But you asked me which one best I know, I know. Yeah. I, I think...
2: The, the wife of Bath was the worst because I don't think she's got to the point where she realizes. No, no, that she's notes, yeah, right.
1: The part, the partner at
2: least has gotten to that point. Yeah. whether he does anything about it yep. or not is another story yep. to be told. Yep. And I think the, to the answer to your second question, I think she, I think she was beautiful inside from the very beginning, and I think it's one of those interesting stories where you know whether she was, was always beautiful, and it wasn't until the knight saw the beauty within that he realized the beauty without whether there was an actual transformation. Yeah. But I think she
1: she was she was beautiful from within,
2: from the very beginning.
1: Because we're all made in the image of God. Any other, before we leave, Sue, if you could hold off to that, can you, until, or do you? She's, I'm trying to give it to her, she's leaving. No, I mean the question about you. Can you wait till next week, yeah. or?
0: I have something
1: to say to Fred, but I'll say it after. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, maybe we better stay for another minute.
2: See you guys next week.
1: Next, next week we're doing the door or the uh, Griselda story. Griselda, the um, this extraordinarily obedient wife, and Helena. All's well that ends well. Okay. Okay. Have a good week. Did you guys enjoy? I hope you enjoyed Chaucer. Yeah, he's fine.
0: Did you like it? I'm still reading it. I know. I, I don't want that. I'm, i got to get it. Those colors
1: are beautiful. Oh,
0: Those are beautiful. Very patriotic. Oh, yeah, because your response when we said that was said I was not going to. I've got to run before <laughs> <she can. laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, these—it's going to be interesting how you find Corollis. This man of words, this man of words. I tell you, these women are after the men. <laughs> <laughs> Lois, can I ask a favor? Can you carry this back? Or wait, who? Don, Can you do this? Can you take it back to the? Do you have time on your way out? Huh?
2: I'll, I'll take it. If it's can you? It yeah, sure.
1: You know where the, they're doing the photographs? Yeah.
2: yeah. Can you yeah. take it back there? I'm really yeah. grateful. Thanks. In fact, I'll do it right now. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't bring the third back. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: was going to ask you if you have, uh, you have another study guide or? We so can have on the copper tape. <laughs> <table laughs> yes. Um, we do. Yes. Here we go. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
1: No, he done he ran. He, no, he done <laughs> he, got, no he ran. The <laughs> Where's the box for the uh... Okay. Just We're just about through with He's coming time. back. Doc, look, oh here, I've got it. Oh, okay. Um
0: he's coming back though. I know. And he the on <laughs> I, know. I don't. I don't want
1: to tell him okay. that.
0: I'm scared. Okay. I get it. Oh, no. No, no, he's not. He's not really serious. Okay. No, no, we <laughs> can take that. He's married to a strong woman. <laughs> thank you. He gets <laughs> it all the <laughs> time. I'm getting so old and cross. Oh, don't say, say that. Me. Oh, well, these aren't
1: Friends, really have very, have very long. Francis, did you enjoy Chaucer? Yes. Did you?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's the humor. Yeah. No. <laughs> <No. laughs> oh boy. Well, thank you so much. Oh sure, Isn't that was wonderful. And this is, I mean I think I need to do a little adjusting but it's pretty good. It's oh I think wonderful. it's so Yeah, I mean it's, as I said it's the first time I've made it so you look